rethink. Are you ready to rethink? Are you ready for Christmas, the Christmas season? You know, I don't know if you expected to walk in here and see a Christmas tree and that sort of thing. Next Sunday, you will. We're going to decorate on Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock. So if you're, you know, if you're available, I know a lot of you are working, but if you're available Wednesday at 10 o'clock, come join us. We're going to put up the big tree in the atrium and um, kind of make it festive here. Um, have you ever heard the phrase 14er? Anybody know what a 14er is? Raise your hand if you know what a 14er is. Has anybody in here ever climbed a 14er? Ah, we have a couple hands. I see those hands. Um, so a 14er, if you didn't know, is a mountaintop that's over 14,000 feet. And did you know that Wyoming has not but none? There are no 14ers in the state of Wyoming. None. Um, there's there's, uh, let's see, I, in my research, I found that there's 38 peaks between 13,000 and 13,999 feet, but there's none over 14,000. Um, how many do you think, how many 14ers do you think are in Colorado? A lot. 59. I mean, it, there's argument of this, of course. It's either 53 or 59, depending on how you calculate them, whatever. I mean, I read that. This one right up here, um, this is Mount Elbert. Uh, that is actually the tallest peak in Colorado. It's 14,440 feet. What's the, I wonder what the, well, a, a couple of you, um, how, how high was your 14er, Cecil? You don't remember. You mean, oh, and you walked it. You climbed it? Oh, you drove it. Oh, well, actually, my wife and I have been on a 14er before, but we did the same thing as you. We drove to the top of Pikes Peak. Who's actually climbed one? Sam, Garrett, I'm pretty sure you haven't climbed a 14er, but um, Sam, how high? Mount Elbert. Cool. Um, awesome. All right. Um, like I said, Sarah and I have been on one, along with Cecil. Uh, we were in a convertible. It was pretty cool. It was a nice drive. Um, that's the way to do a 14er, actually. Um, now, here's the thing. If we could take all of the high points of the New Testament and... Uh, and we could match them to 14ers, the passage that we're in today would be in the top five. Um, today's passage is, as, as far as miracles go, and as far as truth and foundation and centrality of Christianity, it is, it is top five passages. And, and we're going to find out why here shortly. Uh, if you would turn with me to chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, if you haven't already, uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. 1 through 11 of... of um, Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, these next six verses contain one of the most incredible descriptions um, of Jesus Christ um, in Paul's writings. In fact, one biblical scholar wrote a book on the on the book of Philippians that was 550 pages long, and he spent over 110 pages on the next six verses alone. Let's read it. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing 
by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, the book of Philippians, as we've we've said, is the most upbeat, positive, joy-filled letter that Paul ever wrote to any of the churches. He talks about joy and happiness in relationships and in circumstances, and, and we aren't happy in relationships and circumstances if there's conflict. And we've looked at that over the last couple of weeks. Um, some of you have, have experienced conflict this week, and, and you've told me how powerful last week's message was in how you approached the, the interactions that you had with people this week. And, and I want to say just off the top here, it's not out of sheer discipline. It's not just out of a works-based ability that we're able to do this. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when you are entering into those sorts of conflicts and discussions and relationships, Man, we've got to be steeped in prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to give us the power and the words to work through those situations. Now, in in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul mentions that there's some complaining and grumbling going on. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 2, he mentions people by name. He mentions two ladies who are butting heads in the church in Philippi. And they must be key people in the church because Paul is over 800 miles away in prison and he hears about this. And in fact, he says that his own joy can't be full until there is a single-mindedness that pervades the whole church. And and that single-mindedness all um, is, is centered on Jesus Christ and who he was and who he is. Now, rather than just ignore these pockets of conflict, Paul knows that if these are allowed to go on, that they're going to become disruptive, distracting, and destructive in the midst of that church. I mean, it could get the church off its mission, and, and that's what happens. That's the, enemy's, that's the enemy's goal, is to get us complaining and arguing with each other and not seeking the kingdom first. And letting all these other things be added unto us. And of course, this doesn't just happen to churches. You know, th- this happens in just about every arena in our culture. Um, Rodney King immortalized these words. People, I just want to say, can we all get along? You know, I, sometimes when history is, you know, even decades in the past, you sort of forget about it. I watched some footage of, of that of the riots in, in L.A. and all of that. And what a horrible, horrible time. You know, we think that it's crazy right now in our culture. There, there's been just as crazy times in, in the last 20, 30 years in, in our nation. I mean, it, it seems so simple, doesn't it? Whenever we look at conflicts from the outside in, we think to ourselves, well, if they would just do this, Right? If, 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 if the Palestinians and the Israelis would just stop blowing each other up, maybe they could work out some sort of agreement to be peaceful. You know, I mean, and there, there's lots of things in our culture that, that we look at it from the outside and we just think, man, it, 
it, it's just really simple. Think of your own relationships. Think of your relationships with your kids, with your, with your spouse, your extended family, your neighbors, your coworkers. You were probably with a lot of them this weekend. And, so, and for some of us here, that was a really good thing. And for some of us in here, that was kind of a struggle. You know, I've done weddings for people who on their wedding day tenderly look at each other in the eye and they say some of the loftiest and some of the most loving things that, that people could ever speak to, um, only later to sit in a court across from each other. And in fact, they won't even look each other in the eye anymore. In fact, they won't even refer to each other by name. They refer to that other person as their ex. Why is it so hard? Why is it so difficult? Now, in the Bible, on page three of our amazing history as, as humans, um, God asks Adam about eating the forbidden fruit. And like any responsible, humble, honest man, he looks at Eve and he says, this woman you gave me, she made me eat it. So he doesn't just blame Eve, he blames God for giving him Eve. I mean, the Bible is full... The Bible is full of account after account of people who can't get along. And I wonder if many of us in here this, this last week didn't argue with someone or have a conflict with someone, if not out loud in our heads. Anyone get angry this week? Anyone want to strike back, ever have trouble getting along? I think Paul puts his finger on the problem and then he lays out for us the remedy. He says that the problem concerns our mindset, how we think about God, how we think about ourselves, and how we think about our relationships. In verse 2, he's, he, he tells us that we need to be like-minded. We need to ha- have the same mind. In verse 5, he says, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. He's talking about our thinking. He said, you guys need to rethink this. Now, the problem I think this is the first thing in your notes. The problem is we can't get along. And in verse 3, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. The problem is selfish ambition and vain conceit. Now, these are very rich words right here in this section. And if you read five different translations, you're going to get five different words. Five different English words. The first one is sometimes translated rivalry. Rivalry. Only not just the normal kind of rivalry, you know, like the UWCSU border war football game that's mostly in fun and competition, right? It's not like that. The word means extreme fighting. Uh, these people live to fight. These, these people who are selfish, who have selfish ambition and vain conceit. Uh, They're always right. My group is always right. My country is always right. Those people are the problem. They won't listen to reason or another perspective on the truth. Sometimes it is that. What do we call people who drive through here from Colorado? Greenies. It's not a term of endearment, right? It's not. You know, those people are the problem. Last week in chapter 1, we read about some church leaders who were motivated out of selfish 
rivalry with Paul. It's the same word. It's the same word. These extreme fighters take things personally. They can't have a conversation. You can't have a conversation with them without them getting defensive over something. And, and here's what it is, and I think this is a sub-point in your notes. It's the need to be right. It's the need to be right. I mean, we all have this in us, right? You've been, you, you, maybe you had a conversation with your wife or your husband this morning about something. And, and it's your memory against hers. And you know, you know, husbands, that she's 90% right. But there's that 10%, right? And we're not going to give her that sliver of truth. We're not going to give up on that. We're going to hold on to that. And then the, and so it ceases to be about truth. And it becomes the need to be Right? We need to save face. We need to defend our sliver of the truth, and I'm not going to let it go. We also experience this extreme fighting inside ourselves, and this is, this is the one that I think we all need to get this morning, and it's, it's how we think about ourselves, and, and here's, here's the point. We have this improper self-thinking. We have this improper self-thinking. Do you ever compare yourself with others? Um, comparison is healthy when the motivation is to learn, but, but comparison turns toxic when it becomes a judgment. A judgment of them or me. How they look, their education, their clothes, how much money they make, their tattoos, their title, the car that they drive, their life accomplishments. I compare myself to other speakers. I hear other speakers speak, and I think, man, I wish I could communicate that well. Well, that becomes a judgment, and I'm essentially telling myself that I'm not as good and that I, I, I fall short. I compare North Hills with other churches. I compare my accomplishments with other people's accomplishments who are the same age. Have you ever done that? Yeah. Now, it's, it's fine to look at others if the intent is to learn, but often it's not, and when it's not, the comparison includes a judgment of them or me. And if there's a sense of feeling inferior or superior, that thinking included a judgment. Now, here's a picture of another 14er that I want Roy to put up on the screen. This one right here is Mount Huron. Okay, Mount Huron. Now, this was taken actually from another 14er. Um, my brother Dennis and his, his wife one day were climbing this mountain. And they're on their way up, and I don't know how, many, how far away they were from the top, um, but about a mile from the top, oh, well, there it is right there in how he tells the story. About a mile from the top, they noticed a couple of hikers ahead of them. And then I want to quote him as he tells the story. He says, we began to catch up with them. When we were several hundred yards behind them, I could see that it was a father, mid-40s, and a young man, probably his son. Barbara and I were considerably older and obviously in much better shape. We were gaining on them. Then they shed their backpacks. We didn't. As we started up the cone, it was a lot of boulder hopping. We, we catch up with them. Then we pass them. We get to the top of the 14er before they do. Way ahead of them, he says. I'm thinking, and I quote, man, we're something. They're obviously grossly out of shape, you know, compared to us. End quote. They finally summit, panting and puffing. 
we get to talking, you know, like Andersons generally do. They tell us that they're training to go climb some tall mountain in South America. And I'm thinking, my brother says, we could climb that mountain today. Then they said this, yeah, this is our third 14er today. I would have loved to have been there to see the look on his face. <laughs> it seems like he's always better at everything than me. Fishing, all of that stuff. That's a judgment. That's a comparison. Should I be comparing myself to my older, one of my older brothers? No. No, I shouldn't be. So this selfish ambition, this extreme fighting, whether it's between two people or whether it's inside of us, about us, or two groups or nations, is not really the source of the problem. That's a symptom. Okay, the next word Paul uses is the source, the cause. It's translated vain conceit. The, the King James Version calls it vain glory. Vain glory. What it really means, according to Tim Keller, it's glory hunger. It's the hunger for glory. The ultimate source is glory hunger. We are, as human beings, hungry for glory. To have glory means to matter, to be weighty, to be significant. It means that we count in life. Who doesn't want to count, right? We all crave this. We're driven by this. To be created in the image of God means that God has put this capacity to matter in every one of us. So we're, we're created with this. But the worst thing for us is not that we're hated or opposed or disagreed with. The worst thing for a human being is that we're ignored, we're overlooked, taken for granted, left out, that we don't matter. Have you ever thought that in the last week? I mean, we need to be a somebody, right? Not a nobody. The problem is not that we have a drive to matter, though. It's that we try to manufacture glory for ourselves. That we count for something that we've, we've shown a, a video of a, a comedian talking about the me monster rises up inside of us. We seek status either through work or rewards by comparing ourselves to other people. We, this, this status thing, I, I noticed this on Thursday during the first football game, and I don't know if every network does it, but the, the network that, that did the first football game on Thursday did. When they, when they show the starters of, of the offense and the defense at the very beginning, under every one of the starters' names was his rank by position compared to all the other football players in the league. And I thought to myself, why do I need to know this? Why can't I just watch this guy today play the game, not already have a conceived picture in my mind of how he matches up against everyone else that plays his position in, the, in all of the NFL? It's the, really, we kind of live in this in our culture. It's, it's everywhere. We need to be right. We're easily offended when things don't go our way, when our idea isn't, isn't the one that rises to the top at work or picked or, or we're, we're not appreciated. We take offense to that. If someone snubs us, we either explode and say, how dare they? 
How dare they treat me like that? Or we internalize it and we say, they're right. I screwed up. I'm stupid. I'm lazy. I'm a loser. And we may even use those words. Relationships. You know, we can get our significance from who we're dating or who we're sleeping with or who we're married to. Or I get it from how well my kids are doing in school or the career that they picked and that they excel in. Or how well the grandkids are doing. Now, I think that's just something that grandparents are all given that they should do, honestly. Now, here's the thing, and I think this is the next point, and this is the one I want you to think about when you leave here today. The more we are aware of our lack of glory, the more we try to get it. So the smaller we feel, the bigger we act. The smaller we feel, the bigger we act. The more ignored we feel, the more drama we create so people notice us. The less we think of ourselves, the more it matters what other people think of us. That's important. The irony of this is that the bigger we act, the smaller we actually feel because then people don't want to be around us and we're alone. I mean, who likes to be around somebody whose motto in life is, it's all about me? There's actually a song like that. I wouldn't suggest getting it, but there's actually a song titled, It's All About Me. And the core of many human conflicts, many arguments, many fights, is this dynamic. Someone trying to manufacture their own glory. So what's the solution? So what's the solution? Look at... Verses 4 and 5. Rather, Paul says, in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, how is that even possible? Well, I think we rethink Jesus. We rethink the real Jesus. And there's three things here. The first one is this. And Jesus was fully God. Jesus was fully God. And, and you're thinking, yeah, I know that. I know that he was. I believe that. But, but, but let's just look at it a little bit further. In verse 6, Paul says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, literally, Jesus was the morph of God. Now, in English, morph is translated form, Okay? Um, now, a caterpillar, you, that may be brought to, to your mind, metamorphosis, right? Um, a caterpillar experiences metamorphosis. It, it becomes a butterfly, but it, it merely changes the exterior form. The insides of that butterfly are still the same. That's not the way it is with Jesus. That's not the word that's being used here. What this word means here is the very essence of something. The very essence of something. This is the strongest statement possible about the nature of Jesus Christ. He was at his very nature fully God. Now, what does this matter? Augustine points out that if Jesus wasn't fully God, then we have a defective God. 
God could not be relational nor loving by nature unless Jesus existed with God and the Holy Spirit in their essence. If it was just God alone, who was there to love? So then in creating, essentially what he was doing was he was creating objects to love. But God wasn't alone. God was in his existence in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And there was this ongoing relationship. One God, three persons. If God isn't a trinity, then in order for God to love something or someone, then he had to create angels. He had to create human beings, or Jesus for that matter. He would have had to create to get love, or to fulfill somehow a love need. But that's not who God is. Because God has always existed. Lovingly relational, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He didn't create the world to get love. He created the world to give it. He wanted there to be a whole lot more love in the universe. Verse 6, even though Jesus was fully God, it says that, that he didn't consider equality with God something to be held, which is just crazy, isn't it? I mean, he is God. But he takes on this attitude of at this point in time, I don't, he didn't view, he shed his royal status, his divine status. He gave that up. He gave up the position. Verse 7 says, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, a slave, being made in human likeness. The second thing that Paul points here about Jesus is that Jesus was fully human. He was fully human. He didn't come trying to convince people of his status as God, did he? He didn't show up on the scene with bright lights and, and, and loudspeakers and lots of gold and horses and ah, right? I mean, we're entering into a season now where, where we talk about the fact that he came into this world very humbly. A lot of people didn't even know he showed up. He didn't say, hey, look at me. I'm the all-powerful God. Now bow down and worship me. If, if Jesus had come with those great claims of divinity and demonstrations, I think the response to him would have been fear. And honestly, if, if God wanted us to fear him, we would. <laughs> and I'm talking about fear, afraid for your life fear, not fear, healthy respect of. Reverence. Now, there were certainly plenty of people in Paul's day who were doing this. The Roman emperor Augustus, for instance, had such military and organizational power that people began to regard him as divine, and he ate it up. He loved it. And this, of course, this desire to be God didn't start with Augustus. Remember Adam and Eve? I mean, what, why did they eat the fruit? What was their original temptation? They doubted the honesty of God and the serpent came to them and said, you can be like God. There are entire religions today who say you can be your own God. You can become a God. You are already a part of God. And anytime we say something like this, I know 
what God has for me, or I know what the Bible says about that, but I need to be happy. Or I need to be significant, or I need to be important, or I need to be right. We're grasping at at equality with God. Look at Luke 1, 31 through 35. You will conceive and give birth to a son, the angel said to Mary, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. I mean, eventually, one day, Jesus is going to be known to be these great things. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, it, it came to, to pass. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. They, no fanfare, no great announcement, short of some shepherds on the side of the field getting a concert and being scared out of their wits. Why? Why? Why did Jesus, who was fully God, become, become fully man? He did this in order to give love. Jesus came to give love. Now, what is love? Now, I, love is a decision. It's an act of the will. It's not a fuzzy, emotional, you know, um, chemical, hormonal feeling, although that sort of helps love along a little bit. Love is a decision. It's, it's a choice. And, and it's also be the willingness to give up something for someone else. I mean, when you, when you ask someone to marry you, you are essentially saying, I'm done making all of my own decisions. I'm done thinking of only myself. I'm, I'm done. I'm giving that up. I'm sacrificing that so that we can be together. When you want to get married, you exchange the life of singlehood for marriage. The writer Mike Mason says that getting married is like planting a tree in your living room. Have you ever known anybody that had a tree? I knew somebody in Pine Bluffs had a tree. Instead of cutting it down to build their addition, they built it around the house. Well, the problem with that is anytime you want to move the furniture or anytime you want to do something different with the room... There's this tree in the middle of it, right? You always have to account for the tree. That's what he says marriage is like. We always have to account for the other person. When you have kids and, and parents that, that love their kids, they exchange sleep-filled nights for sleepless nights. You exchange that nice 60-inch flat TV that you could have bought for a college scholarship fund. You exchange clean for diapers and poop and vomit and snot and slobber. You give up all of that. 
And what's, what, what's the ultimate expression of love? You know, I, I'm amazed at people. Some of them, I know a pastor in Pine Bluffs, he donated one of his kidneys to somebody he didn't even know. God put this thing together, and, and I'm thinking, but what if you needed that later in life? What if the last one that you have quits working? Right? That's a sacrifice. That's an incredible sacrifice, I think. But the ultimate sacrifice would be if you knew somebody who you matched completely, 100%, who needed a heart transplant, and you said, you can have mine. That is the ultimate expression of love. To lay one's life down for another person. Jesus made that ultimate sacrifice in order to love us. Look at verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Jesus died on that cross as the divine expression of his magnificent obsession with us. To save us, to rescue us, he gave his life and took on the full and total weight of every sin that was and will ever be committed on himself. He bore that for you and for me. That's where your worth comes from. That's where my worth comes from. Not from what we do. Not from who we are, what we have. Our worth comes from his glory, from his gift, from his sacrifice. Not not from what we think we need to manufacture. It comes from him. When we picture someone in all of their glory, how do we picture them? You know, a couple weeks ago, I think it was a couple weeks ago, uh, I, I did a wedding here. And uh, to see the bride come up the aisle, right? What happens when she enters back there? What does everybody else do? They stand. Why? Because there she is in all of her glory, and, and we are honoring her. We picture that scholar with a diploma walking across the stage. Finally, they get their glory, so to speak. We see the athlete clutching the gold medal. We see a football team holding up the, the, the championship trophy, experiencing the glory of the moment. And when we picture God in all of his glory in all his weightiness, in all his divine significance, what should we see? Not a king on a throne. Not some religious dignitary in a bulletproof limo. When we picture God in all of his glory, we should see Jesus Christ. We should see him played out on a cross, his, eye, his life ebbing away one heartbeat at a time. 
crying out when the full weight of what was happening, of that sin descended on his soul. And we hear him pleading for us. What does he say? What are his last words? And he wasn't just talking about those who were killing him that day. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His life for yours. His life for mine. His purity for our sin. He became a nobody so that we could be a somebody. He became a slave so that we could be called the children of God, heirs of of his kingdom. What more glory do we need than that? Now, another story about my brother. This one I was actually with him. We were fishing in Walden, Colorado. And uh, when we fish at Walden, he does this all the time. I couldn't imagine this. But when we fish at Walden, October, sometimes November, this time in November, it's not bad because there's no ice on the lake. We fish at night in the dark. How those fish see that black woolly bugger laying on the bottom of the lake, I'll never know, but they do, and they're big in this lake. So we're out in the middle of this lake. It's, it's like 11 or 12 at night. It was a calm night, no moon, clear. And, and Dennis looks up at the stars, and, and you could see every constellation. The Milky Way looked like a highway, just blazing across the sky. I mean, we're in North Park, Colorado. There isn't a, 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 an artificial light within 10 miles of us. And he looks at all of this and he says to me, just think, every one of those stars are millions of times bigger than the earth. The Milky Way looks like a wide highway made of stars. It has billions of stars in it, he says. And there are billions and billions of galaxies in our universe. What do you say to that, right? Depending on what night it was, I was either shivering, looking up at the stars. And I thought, and I said out loud, I said, makes you feel kind of small, doesn't it? And this is what he said. He said, no, actually, it makes me feel really big. He's always thinking. You see, because the God who created all of that died specifically for me and for you, and for my brother. And to know that someone of such great power and worth would do that for me, again, do I even need to say this? Is there anything else in life that I should ever want or base my life on than that thing? As I've thought about that this week, it's, it's, it's been a challenge. I matter to God. You matter to God. And when I fail, not morally, not 
sinfully, just when I fail, when I, I don't do a job right or something like that. And Satan and the world want to make me feel this high. I need to look at that and say, no, I'm not comparing myself to somebody else who might get it always right all the time. Because I'm a child of God. And I have worth. And I'm important to him. And honestly, I don't need to be important to anybody else. Now that is easily said and wrestled with every day. But we've got to rethink our thinks when it comes to this. Because we can live our lives completely miserable and depressed and discouraged if we think that we're not worth anything. And there are lots of people out there that want you to think that. Because it makes them feel more glory. It makes them feel bigger themselves. And we don't have to give them that. If, if this is your first Sunday in this series, go back and listen to the previous two messages and catch up. There's some great stuff here. When we're overlooked or unappreciated by other people, it doesn't matter. Because we aren't overlooked by God. That's why when our kids don't like us, or our spouse leaves us, or we get passed over for a promotion, or we fail at something, or someone disappoints us, or our idea isn't used, deep inside, we're fine. Because we're loved by the God of the universe who came here to rescue us. That's why it saddens God when I feel like I don't measure up and I do it plenty. And I bet you do too. Or we lack confidence and we feel insecure or we get overcompetitive. Well, never happens to me. I mean, here's... This rethinking this concept is what gives us the desire to live out verse number four, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. We need to rethink on Jesus as the worship team comes up here for our final song and the taking of our tithes and our offerings. Um, here's how much I wrestle with this. Just if, if you think I'm... That, that what I'm saying is I've got a handle on this. I'm, I'm watching a football game last night, right? And if you were watching the same football game I was watching, you were frustrated, but I'm not sure you were as frustrated as I was for whatever reason. I just hate losing. And, and after the, I don't know, fifth or sixth touchdown before halftime for the other team, my son throws the blanket off and says, I'm going to sit in the hot tub. And my wife says, let's go. And I look at her and I'm like, I'm not going. She said, ah, come on. And I raised my voice. This does not happen very often. I was tired. I'm sorry. I said, she was, and of course my wife's response was, really? A football game. And she was dead right. I was so wrapped up in this, I wanted them to win so badly that it affected how I treated her. 
Ah, it's ridiculous. But that's how much I struggle with this too. And together, together, I want us to to be Christ-intoxicated people who center all of our life on him so that it doesn't, I mean, we need to care about our job and how we do it and that sort of thing, but when people are critical, as we talked about last night or last week, we don't let it control us. We let Jesus Christ control us. Lord Jesus, thank you for everyone that's listening, for everyone that will listen, for those that are here today. Father, I pray that we we center our lives on you. Jesus, this season as we enter into the season of Advent, a time of of preparation as as we await, anticipate that final celebration of the year of your coming to save us, to give your life. Oh, Father, I pray that as we do this, that that, that our relationships deepen and they're strengthened and, our, and our, our, the conflicts that we have kind of fall away and, and our self-thinking changes from I'm a failure, one who doesn't match up with all of the people around me to Jesus Christ died for me and I have worth because of that. And Lord, as we give and as we rise and we sing this final song, may you be the reason that we live our life this week. In Jesus' name, amen.